Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 in our home city of New York. Uh, but our goal at the conferences and on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Scott Sperling to Salt Talks. Uh, Scott is the co-CEO of Thomas H. Lee Partners and a member of the firm's management and investment committees. Uh, Mr. Sperling's current and prior directorships include Thermo Fisher Scientific Corp., uh, the Madison Square Garden Company, Experian, Warner Music Group, Houghton Mifflin, Univision Communications, iHeartMedia, The Learning Company, Wyndham Hotels, and many, many more uh, private companies. Prior to joining Thomas H. Lee Partners, Mr. Sperling was a managing partner and of the affiliate of Harvard Management Company uh, that managed all alternative asset classes for Harvard University's endowment fund. Uh, he is the chairman of Mass General Brigham, the parent of the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as a number of leading specialty and community hospitals and physicians practice groups. Uh, he's a chairman emeritus of the City Center for Performing Arts and Wang Theater. He's also a member of each of Harvard Business School Board of Deans Advisors, um, uh, the Harvard University Committee on University Resources, and the Harvard Business School's Rock Center for Entrepreneurship. He holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's degree from Purdue University. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Well, first of all, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on with us, Scott. I apologize for my attire. I feel like I don't have the standard <laughs> uniform on. Uh, maybe maybe uh, next time, although I probably can't fit into my suit anymore. I didn't get COVID-19, Scott, but I got the 19 pounds. 19 pounds, exactly. I got the, I got the 19 pounds associated with COVID-19. Um, so you had this amazing career. Uh, and for congratulations, but I want you, if you don't mind, we have a lot of young listeners, and I want you to go back to the early days of what you were thinking about before your career started, and then how did it manifest itself pursuant to that arc of your plans, and how did it deviate? Well, I would say that, you know, one thing I found to be a useful characteristic personally, and I know other people have a different view on this, is I don't really plan ahead very much. And so it's hard to get disappointed. Uh, and I would have to say that, um, you know, I was very fortunate uh, to um, find some really inter interesting opportunities with uh, great leaders uh, early in my career. Uh, and that really helped guide me to uh, where I am today. Um, I haven't worked for very many firms in my life. Uh, so it's, I will acknowledge it's a small sample set, but um, uh, I started off coming out of business school at BCG, which was a great experience in days when strategy consulting was still very young. This was 40 years ago. Uh, and then uh, I was given the opportunity at a young age to, um, to start and then manage all of the alternative asset classes for the firm that manages Harvard's endowment fund. And, uh, you know, being involved in venture capital and buyouts and 
uh, real estate and commodities back in the uh, mid and early 80s, all the way through the mid 90s was, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity to see a lot of really smart uh, and energetic people do some amazing things in areas that had not yet been exploited. And then for the last uh, 26, 27 years uh, to uh, lead an organization like THL has been a, a real blessing. So it's been uh, a very fortunate set of circumstances. Your portfolio, like everybody's, got impacted by COVID-19. So tell us what happened. Tell us what you guys did to adapt and pivot. And tell us what your outlook is during this uh, recovery that we're at. So we, we've been fortunate that our strategy involves identifying very specific subsectors within three broad areas, financial services and fintech, uh, uh, healthcare, and what we call technology and business solutions that have uh, very strong secular growth drivers to them. And there are a lot of people out there doing similar sorts of things of what you know, maybe called thematic investing. We tried to drill down and just become incredibly expert in a few handful of areas within those three broad sectors. And those areas, again, are typified by very strong, sustainable, secular growth, interesting uh, return on invested capital characteristics, and uh, tend to be larger addressable markets. And the benefit of that during the downturn was that we didn't see as much negative impact as um, you might see with a more broadly constructed portfolio. So we were fortunate in that regard. And like many others, we have um, significant operating capability resident within our firm. We have a team of operating experts that were able to go to the portfolio companies and help them manage through what could have been a difficult period. So um, we were generally in a pretty good spot to start with. And as the world um, got better pretty quickly, as we all know, uh, from a business perspective, even though it's been horrific in terms of the impact on uh, lots and lots of, um, uh, of people, uh, both in this country and around the world, from a business perspective, we saw a very significant growth return reasonably quickly um, and are fortunate, again, to be in areas um, that are tending to be much stronger growers uh, than um, uh, the broad economy. Well, I want you to react to this. Would it be fair to say that private equity now, and specifically to TH Lee, is focusing more on growth areas and less sort of on what I would call unlocking synergies due to consolidation? Or where do you see the vision for your firm and private equity in general going forward from here? So there's definitely been a shift over the course of the last 20 years to growthier spaces. Now, our firm's heritage was always middle market growth, so it fits reasonably well with, with what we're doing, but where there is growth is different. So years ago, we were very big players in consumer and retail, and it was a great space for us. We don't find that same set of strong secular growth drivers in more traditional consumer and retail uh, anymore. And so the shift has been to more technology-based companies that serve those markets. And I think there are a lot of firms uh, in our industry that, that um, have uh, focused in on those kinds of areas. And we're always trying to look for spaces um, where there is a dynamic of change that can lead to relatively explosive growth. 
so automation is a space that we've been a major player in uh, for quite a while. Um, you know, it, it is a space that that plays to the um, need of companies in the United States and around the globe to help support their uh, existing employees, take away the more mundane and labor uh, intensive tasks that don't require high skill sets and uh, allow their employees to focus on other areas while increasing productivity. And as we uh, are in a period where there are projected labor shortages in lots of different places, um, automation is going to play a key role in bridging the gap between uh, where we are today and where we might be in terms of the demand for labor that that uh, can't be met. So, you know, I'm I'm of the theory that automation and technological innovation is always good long term for the economy and also for the working class because you just improve the quality of life and you scale up. It's the same reason why the horseless carriage replacing the people that had labor associated with horses, they seem to have also done better. Uh, am I right about that? Uh, should we be optimistic about the furtherance of automation or pessimistic? I think you're exactly right about the impact of automation long-term and even in the intermediate term, because uh, the need to increase productivity and allow employees to see their um, compensation levels rise and also be able to produce products at prices that do not create significant inflation can only be solved with increasing automation. And that automation uh, takes place in lots of di different spheres, certainly on the factory floor, in uh, uh, distribution and warehouse centers. Uh, we've seen a significant uh, bump in the amount of automation that is being utilized. Again, in most cases, it, it takes the place of that uh, labor that can't be found and allows existing employees to both get higher hourly wages as well as focus on higher value-added tasks, all of which contribute to productivity. But we're also seeing automation in uh, offices, uh, in healthcare, that allow for much more productive output uh, that, again, allows us to manage the cost of providing goods and services in ways uh, that uh, can in, uh, avoid inflationary prices, as well as come up with many better solutions in areas where the automation actually provides functionality uh, that doesn't exist or can't exist um, uh, without it. And so in healthcare, uh, automation, whether it's in um, surgical robots or in uh, pathology and radiology, will have a significant impact on our ability to come up with better solutions for patients. So, Scott, I want to follow up on the healthcare piece because that's something that we're keenly interested here at SALT and, and at SkyBridge. We, we've launched an early stage, not just biotechnology fund, but investing in earlier stages in, in private uh, healthcare-oriented companies. And I know it's something that you guys focus on a lot over there at THL. You mentioned a couple of, of examples of technology, but how has technology and private investment uh, really accelerated a lot of these advances that we've seen in the healthcare sector coming out of the pandemic and even in the pandemic? And what part of those changes do you think are permanent uh, that are gonna come out of the pandemic long-term? So, you know, one of the things that's really crucial um, in healthcare um, is uh, the ability to reduce total medical expense. 
uh, of the, the cost of care provision while providing greater access to uh, patient, for patients to advanced therapeutics uh, to be able to more easily reach their uh, primary care provider and certainly um, high specialty care uh, providers. Um, things like telehealth, the use of digital technologies is one of the obvious things that we've seen. Um, there's an explosion of growth uh, in that during the pandemic by necessity. I think it's important uh, that the government continues to support the utilization of those technologies because it's the way that people want to receive um, uh, uh, care in many circumstances. Uh, and when you look at the cost of uh, care overall, it's really people who are uh, uh, of tertiary or quaternary acuity, the really sick patients that cost the system the most. And if we get better compliance because people can use digital and telehealth uh, capabilities, uh, that would be uh, a significant improvement and can hold down the overall cost of, total uh, of the total medical expense. The uh, other area that you're seeing uh, growth in science is, are the uh, uh, capabilities that you see, whether it's uh, next generation uh, sequencing uh, technologies, lots of technologies that uh, continue to be developed uh, in ways that dramatically reduce the cost of drug development and the ability to, um, uh, again, provide therapeutics and diagnostics to patients uh, at ever lower cost. And you're gonna see opportunities uh, in lots of different ways um, in order to accomplish uh, what I've just described. Uh, back in the 1990s, um, we knew that science was growing. Um, we weren't sure at THL that we were that good at, at uh, being able to predict which biotechnology company or which specific therapeutic a pharma uh, was developing would be a winner. But we knew it was all growing. And so, you know, we we um, decided to buy a company called Fisher Scientific, which was the largest provider of stuff to the world of science, clinical research, industrial in the world. And we paid, I don't know, about a billion and a half dollars for it in those days. And today, Thermo Fisher, where I'm still on the board, probably has a uh, enterprise value in excess of $200 billion because it, it really grew. And it really grew because it brought together a set of technologies and capabilities that really met the needs of its customer base. Today, when you look at private equity, we're continuing to look for ways to support companies and buy companies that can help uh, the pharma and biotech innovators do their job better and more effectively. So you've seen uh, uh, CROs, the clinical uh, research organizations that do a lot of the testing, grow uh, in terms of um, revenues, profits, and um, uh, market caps. Uh, you see uh, a lot of other players who provide tools and capabilities um, to both healthcare providers, but also to the developers uh, of these um, uh, therapeutics and diagnostics. And those are opportunities that uh, you know, uh, really um, have be become very attractive to people in our industry and that we've been a, a major player in. Yeah, we, we had uh, Walter Isaacson recently on Assault Talk who wrote the book called The Code Breakers about Jennifer Doudna 
and her team uh, that developed the CRISPR technology and continues to lead the genomics revolution. So from an investment perspective, and and maybe it's it's uh, comparable, but are you more excited about more of the, the telehealth preventative medicine type trends or more interested in some of those more uh, moonshot oriented goals? You know, I know you guys are, are investing a lot in the infrastructure around companies that are supporting uh, that genomics revolution, but what, what types of companies? Is it more the, the pharma biotech oriented companies that you guys get most excited about and, and supporting the infrastructure around that? Or is it more of the telehealth and just the remaking of the, uh, you know, the healthcare system in general? I would say that we're, you know, we, when we identify these um, subsectors, you know, within healthcare, um, again, our uh, focus is on uh, things that can have that strong secular growth. And I'd say you you've identified two areas that fall into um, those subsectors, and so um, we're really uh, uh, very active in both spaces. Um, and you know, we're looking for ways that we can help. Uh, providers of care reduce to- total medical expense and reduce the cost to the entire system of providing high quality care from birth through uh, end of life. And there are lots of different opportunities that the industry has um, uh, been able to uh, support uh, in those spaces. Uh, again, bringing down the cost of care while uh, improving access for patients uh, more broadly to that care. Uh, but we're also very interested in uh, supporting the growth of science broadly defined as it helps develop uh, better uh, therapeutics, better diagnostics, uh, better medical devices. And there are lots of different uh, areas that flow into providing that infrastructure in ways that allow uh, the pharma companies and the biotech companies to focus on their most important value added, which is um, the innovation itself uh, of these phenomenal um, uh, therapeutic and diagnostic uh, drugs and uh, capabilities. I wanna step back, take you up to 30,000 feet for a second. And I want you to think about the next killer technology, the next killer drug And so, you know, the invention of statins, the introduction of penicillin, the what is next on the horizon? Is it a immunotherapy that can be delivered? Is it a is it a vaccine like the ones that Walter Isaacson was talking about in Code Breakers? What in your mind, you sit in an interesting seat because you've got private companies, public companies and you sit on the board of a hospital. What's the next killer app for medicine? So one of the things um, that uh, has been great about chairing the board of the Mass General Brigham, which is the largest research uh, uh, system in the country, uh, largest recipient of NIH. John and I are coming to you when we get sick. Okay, there you you go. I just want to make sure you know that, Scott. That's why we're we're asking the question. We're digging. And, and, you know, also because we, you know, are uh, so uh, such a large provider of high-end clinical care, you can see not only the, the 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 flow of basic science that develops in these areas, but I've just been amazed at the translation, you know, trans, what they call the translational research that's done, taking it from those basic ideas to things that actually can work in patients uh, and the nature of how the care has evolved. And, you know, you've you've mentioned some key areas, um, cell and gene 
uh, therapies of all sorts is going to be an enormous uh, space. Um, the uh, development of these vaccines, um, uh, particularly the mRNA-based ones uh, that we've seen from Moderna and Pfizer and there are a couple of other players out there working on that. Uh, you know, it's not only amazing that they were developed as quickly as they were, but perhaps even more uh, uh, impressed. Uh, you know, I was going to say more importantly, but I'm not sure you can say more importantly when it came to dealing with the COVID vaccines. But, you know, in terms of longer term benefit, these are platforms that can be utilized to develop many other uh, uh, effective vaccines and therapeutics. Remembering that the original target for most of the mRNA uh, pioneers was cancer. And so we're looking at ways um, that we can utilize a range of different technologies to deal with some of the most devastating diseases that we have. And so, um, you know, there's the uh, using the mRNA platform to help the body either through vaccine or effectively immunotherapies on things like cancer and a number of other um, uh, a number of other difficult uh, uh, conditions. Um, then you have the ability to use other forms of immunotherapies uh, that are continuing to evolve uh, in ways that become more effective uh, uh, longer um, by bringing cocktails of uh, capability to bear again against cancers and potentially some other um, uh, disease states. Uh, and then you have um, things like CAR-T that again are breakthrough technologies um, that are going to have a big impact on a number of the of the most difficult um, uh, cancers uh, in terms of the nature of of, um, of uh, treatment um, uh, out there. And so, you know, I'm very encouraged that the pace of innovation is going to continue to increase. And the nature of what we're innovating is going to continue to have ever greater impact on a number of um, the most devastating uh, uh, diseases. Now, um, one of the issues with all of this is that particularly early on, the cost of these uh, particularly therapeutics is incredibly high. And so um, while I'm highly encouraged by the um, the advent of uh, and the accelerated uh, introduction uh, of um, new therapeutics. Um, you know, as a system, we also have to think about the long-term cost, not necessarily that sticker shock when somebody says, you know, that's a two hundred fifty thousand or million dollar bill for that solving that particular uh, uh, disease. Um, and you know, we saw that with um, with Hep C, for uh, example. And it's fascinating. I want to want to shift gears for a second. What I love about TH Lee and your work is you're keeping us healthy, and then you're also making us rich through financial services. And so, I now want to I want now I want to put that hat on for a second, and I want you to talk about the future of financial services. Uh, Jamie Dimon recently says he's worried about neo banking. He's worried about the fintech space. Uh, you know, the costs associated with fintech relative to the old school bricks and mortar. Uh, they sort of feel like they're getting assaulted the way book publishing did, as an example, or other uh, industries. Uh, where do you see financial services going? Where's the puck going and where's TH Lee going to be? So um, I bring into a couple of different areas. Um, the first is the 
um, application of technology, um, uh, you know, the so-called fin fintech um, in many of the traditional banking, um, mortgage servicing, mortgage origination spaces. And, you know, as you know, we've been involved, it's publicly known in a number of the leading companies uh, in that space, whether it's FIS, Fidelity National uh, Information Services, or uh, Black Knight Financial and uh, a number of others. Um, and, um, you know, these are companies that uh, provide um, uh, a set of services broadly to the industry um, uh, through uh, fintech platforms uh, that even people like Jamie use because they um, uh, can do it uh, uh, at a much lower cost uh, with greater functionality. And, and you have a number of companies out there uh, in the industry. You know, these are now large publicly traded companies that, um, you know, continue to grow reasonably rapidly. Um, you then have other spaces that uh, have not had that form of technology brought to bear on the value chain as much. I think in insurance, there are lots of opportunities in the insurance industry. When you look at that uh, very in, uh, e, uh, uh, involved and evolving uh, value chain uh, where you have underwriters and uh, agents and lots of people in between where you can increase the efficiency and delivery um, of the service uh, to both customers uh, and to uh, all of the players along that value chain. And so I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities there. You know, you and we're talking about wealth management, and obviously we've seen evolution uh, in the wealth management space, somewhat due to regulatory changes, uh, somewhat due to the ability, again, to utilize technology in ways that remove administrative cost and burden from uh, wealth advisors uh, and allow them to focus again on the highest value added part of what they do. So I think you're gonna to continue to see a lot of opportunity um, in uh, the financial services sector uh, to apply technology uh, all along the various value chains and in ways that um, uh, you know, will improve uh, the performance uh, and delivery of services uh, to customers and clients. Um, you know, at the same time, you have a lot of other things going on, uh, particularly in the uh, digital currency world um, that I'm not sure we've gotten our arms around uh, yet. I note the commentary from uh, uh, coming out of the Berkshire uh, annual meeting um, about uh, Bitcoin being one of the worst things that ever happened. And uh lots of comments about seemed Doge. a little seemed a little angry i mean i just i mean you know <laughs> you know it seemed I, like I, I don't know enough i i actually don't know <laughs> no, enough i'm just saying scott i mean you know you know uh, uh, charlie munger wrote a book poor charlie's almanac he thinks he's reincarnated from ben franklin and in the book he says be dispassionate about your investing but he seems upset about bitcoin you know it's a, yeah. sort of sort of you know i, I don't know but we'll, we'll 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 see who's right there'll be a big tug of war I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey, who has questions from our audience, which he's collected. But I want to ask you this question, and I want you to put your valuation hat on. Uh, things seem pretty rich. I mean, now we both know that interest rates are the financial, they're the physical gravity of financial assets. So they're at zero, they're propelling assets higher. Uh, but in your expertise, your decades of doing this, um, are they, are the valuations too high? Did they give you pause? Did they give you pause in 
financial services. I've been in financial services for 30 years, 33 to be exact. I've never seen valuations like this. So are we okay here or are you worried? I, you know, I'm always worried. Uh, and I've been worried, you know, for six years, I've thought we were within a couple of years of a recession. Now, I'm going to call you out on that. You're don't not, listen, don't not listen really, to you're not really that worried, Sperling, because yeah. you would have lost your hair a long time ago if you were really that worried. Okay? You can yeah, tell exactly. that John and I are not that worried. But, 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 <laughs> but, but the truth is that the valuations are, are, I mean, I don't know, they seem stratospheric. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen continued increase in valuation now, um, you know, I would say that in our view, in my view, valuations need to be tethered on two things. One is, what is a sustainable growth rate? And there are lots of businesses and the market has clearly shifted in terms of the the, uh, proportion of market cap in companies that are growing reasonably uh, fast versus the slower growing, more industrial kind of companies that had historically made up a larger percentage of the market cap. And so when you look overall, you know, if you can anchor um, a, a multiple against first and foremost against sustainable growth rates, you know, that's probably analytically what what makes sense. Um, and uh, it, it's certainly the case that, um, you know, we have lots of potentially fast growing opportunities in the stock market today. Uh, but it's also true there are lots of things that are getting valued uh, well above what would be justified analytically by uh, true sustainable growth rates. So you have to worry a bit about that. And the second piece is clearly interest rates because everything has to be tethered to some form of a, of a, dis, a discount rate, uh, which you know we have been in low longer than anybody had ever expected. Um, one of the potentially worrisome as- aspects about um, the direction that our um, fiscal policy is going um, is that, um, you know, that might change uh, the uh, interest rate formulation in ways um, that are uh, somewhat unpredictable. Um, you know, we all like to believe we can manage the soft landings, uh, as they used to say, or we can manage to a two to two and a half percent inflation rate. Uh, but it's not clear. I mean, I, I have the unfortunate history of uh, having lived through uh, in my business career, I think, six recessions. And they're all, always you're, you're always taken uh, by surprise uh, by how bad they can be. Uh, and there is a point in the recession where you're always taken by surprise about how good it could be on the, on the way out. We're um, certainly in that point where. You know, we'd like to believe we can manage any negative that happens, including potentially inflation and keep it under control. Um, And I hope that's the case. But, um, you know, one needs to be a little bit wary, I think, given uh, uh, we're in somewhat uh, unprecedented territory here uh, in terms of um, fiscal um, uh, stimulus, uh, if um, all of this goes through Um, and, um, you know, we're already seeing uh, enormous inflation at the basic and intermediate goods level. Um, and um, that eventually is going to get passed through to um, uh, to consumers. And yeah, no, it's worse. Oh, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Darcy, but I promise you this, when you turn 97, Sperling, 
I'm going to be asking you the very same question. I just want to see how emotional you're going to be when you're 97 and you're a great, great grandfather. Man, if I can get to uh, anywhere. Right now, you're you're very dispassionate. I was impressed with your very dispassionate analysis. But go ahead, Mr. Dorsey. Well, using all those advanced therapeutics that uh, that Scott (laughs) is helping to unlock through his investing, I think he has a good chance to live to 97 and beyond. And also looks like he's in great shape. So he's he's taking care of himself. But let's pray. (laughs) Yeah. And I I was born in October. That's actually the secret of of my entire career, the prayer. Amen. That's the most important thing. I mean, I was born in October of 1987, so I like to think worrying about financial markets is somehow ingrained in my DNA, given the, the timing of my birth yeah. um, around that crash. But I want to go back to Bitcoin for a second, because, you know, it's something See, that he just he just attacked you and me. Right. Because, Scott, you know exactly where you were on the 87 crash, as do I. This guy was like in a neonatal facility. <laughs> that was literally a karate. That was like literally, he's yeah. in the center box on the Zoom call. That was like taking a karate chop at both of us at the same time. Go ahead, Dorsey. Okay, it's so deftly, so nicely. I'm on, I'm on the ground bleeding, okay? Scott's half <laughs> listening now. Go ahead, Dorsey. So, so back in millennial mode, I want to ask you about Bitcoin, Scott. And you indicated that that you don't necessarily uh, have huge depth of knowledge in the area. And I think a lot of people have been on a crash course to learn more about it over the last year. And you've seen people like Jamie Dimon that Anthony referenced earlier across David Solomon, you name every big bank CEO has been forced to go from you know dismissing this technology to saying so many people are asking for it. We have to figure out what our approach is as a company to delivering these solutions to clients. You mentioned FIS as an investment of yours. They partnered recently with one of our uh, close friends and partners, NYDIG, uh, to basically they're, they're bringing the ability for traditional banks to offer uh, digital asset integration into their core uh, you know, custodial offerings. So as a firm, what do you guys think about this massive rise that we've seen in Bitcoin? Most recently, Ethereum and smart contracts have been exploding uh, at even a faster rate than Bitcoin. What do you guys make of, of the digital asset ecosystem as a firm? And do you think you'll ever make investments into that space or you'll focus more tan- tangentially on firms like FIS that are powering the infrastructure in the same way that you're investing in infrastructure around the biotechnology and pharmaceutical boom? I, I think uh, the quick answer to your last question is we will focus on the infrastructure pieces. And again, you know, partly because I, I just don't think we're always smart enough to pick specific winners in some of these other kinds of areas. But, uh, you know, by serving everyone, you you actually can participate in what is a uh, strong area of thematic growth. Uh, you know, it, it, again, it, uh, blockchain technology is definitely an important technology. And that has application that goes well beyond Bitcoin or any other digital currency. I, uh, you know, I, I think people wonder about digital currencies because we haven't seen anything um, like it in the sense that, you know, we're used to sovereigns having control of currency. And sovereign does not have control of these currencies. And um, when it doesn't have control of, uh, of a currency, um, there are lots of potential, I guess I would call them unintended consequences that can occur. Um, and um, we've already seen a couple of countries, Turkey, India, for example, basically say, we're, we're gonna outlaw this because we can't have that. That is uh, undercutting our ability to manage uh, the monetary policy at the very least of our economy and maybe, you know, uh, beyond. Um, And so, uh, you know, I wonder at some point, 
will we have unlimited digital currencies that are posing as alternatives to our sovereign currency? Now, that's particularly important for the United States, because, as you know, one of the reasons we're able to do what what we can do in terms of borrowing is that we are uh, the reserve currency of the world. Um, and that's a position that is already going to be under challenge by the Chinese and I think the European Union. And they meet, and they um, will use their own digital technologies um, in ways that allow them to challenge the status of the United States as the only true reserve currency right now. And so I think we have to watch that carefully. But um, as Bitcoin becomes more important and um, it is more important to control um, the data flow of who owns it and how they're transacting, it may change the underlying value of that, or perhaps, you know, there's a stroke of the pen risk that says it just has to go away. Certainly when you go to, you know, the, the ones that, you know, is, um, uh, many people have um, commented on like Dogecoin, where there is, there is no limit on supply. It was done as a joke. You know, you just wonder, are we in tulip bulb territory with things like that? So, um, right. You know, again, I'm 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 speaking, uh, but I don't know enough to be <laughs> uh, to be relied upon on uh, any of this. I'm I'm just raising some of the issues that would occur when you have this kind of situation uh, uh, generally. So maybe that's what Charlie Munger should have said at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting um, and been a little bit more dispassionate about it. But it's a conversation for another day. So we've talked about some sectors that you're very enthusiastic about, you know, things in, in the healthcare space, certain areas of financial services, automation generally. There's been an explosion in, in tons of different asset classes, mostly focused on technology, frankly, but uh, some that, you know, there's some suspicion from wary investors that uh, the current rate of growth is not sustainable and, and that there, there's pockets of the market. And we've already seen sort of steep pullbacks and even a lot of public companies that exploded uh, during the pandemic. But are there any specific sectors or subsectors that you're most concerned about that, that as an investor, you've come across deals and said, this makes absolutely no sense. And if I, if I could had a mechanism to do it, I would be short this sector. What areas are you most concerned about or skeptical about? Uh, you know, the pressure uh, on uh, the industrial sector, given again, the move in raw, the pricing of raw materials and intermediate goods is something that, you know, I, I, I know it's becoming a, a popular play in the markets now as we see a return to normalcy from the pandemic because those areas were most adversely affected. Um, but I, I, I think it's, it's worth watching what happens to the cost structure and the ability to sustain uh, strong margin uh, in those areas. Uh, the, uh, you know, again, I, I think uh, looking at the impact uh, on their margins because of the increasing, in fact, in many uh, cases, dramatically increase cost of raw materials and intermediate goods. But, you know, offsetting that is the more rapid adoption of automation and software tools that actually reduce overall system uh, cost in sometimes dramatic ways. So the last question I have for you is, I think people look at the returns for, for a middle market PE firm and say, man, that, that looks like fun to, to invest like that and achieve that level of returns. But there's so much operational expertise that goes into the execution uh, of a lot of these you know, business turnarounds and, and growth investments that you guys make. 
How important is that? And, and what type of value do you guys offer as investors uh, on an operating capacity to companies that you invest in? So, you know, and we've talked a lot about this publicly over time, uh, but um, our strategy has been to be able to provide a significant level of operating expertise that's particularly valuable to middle market companies. And, um, you know, there are a number of, of, of folks in private equity um, who are oriented in the same way um, of being able to provide operating experts on-site at companies in ways that um, allow us to improve the key business processes of these companies. And we have found that that, you know, particularly in the world of, of, um, of uh, rising prices and multiples, that that is a very important driver of value. Um, and I think for the industry, uh, the private equity industry, uh, it's an important value added that we bring to the economy. Now, there are some firms that will focus on um, not growth companies, but areas where there are significant headwinds. Uh, and in order to, um, uh, to help reposition companies, whether they're retailers, bricks and mortar retailers, or other um, uh, maybe older uh, industrial type companies, you know, they'll bring their own expertise to bear in those areas. Um, ours is in helping more uh, rapidly growing companies really be able to uh, sustain and in fact, increase their growth rates in ways that uh, are sustainable over the long term. Right. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that aren't as familiar with the industry, they, they hear the word private equity and they think of Gordon Gecko, but you guys are truly you know, helping to spur innovation and growth uh, in a way that, that doesn't fit with necessarily some people's archetype of, of what uh, no. pri private equity looks like. And, so, and, and, you know, clearly we don't always get it right. Uh, right. And, um, you know, particularly as you're uh, you may try to help transform an old economy company into a new one. You know, there have been lots of challenges. Um, but there's really nobody else stepping up to try to do those things. Um, so, um, you know, I think the industry overall, uh, you know, is um, trying to uh, provide value uh, in ways that are not otherwise available to uh, a broad set of companies that um, in this very dynamic world are perhaps have been on the wrong side of technological change and innovation, uh, but still have um, lots of employees and Lots of reasons to um, uh, try to survive and, uh, and, in fact, thrive. Well, Scott, congratulations on all the work you guys are doing and all the success you've had. Thanks so much for joining us here on Salt Talks. Anthony, you have any final word for Scott before we let him go? No, listen, it's a, it's a pleasure to hear you talk. I'm uh, I'm coming to you when I get sick. You do that. Uh, I'm coming to hopefully, you when I need to read. not for a long time. Hopefully not for a long time. I'm coming to you when I re re need to reinvent my financial services business. Uh, you're sort of stuck with us now, okay? Uh, it, it's too bad. All you right. Know where you reach me. All right. Well, we appreciate it. It was a real That's pleasure great. to have you on. And uh, I found the conversation fascinating. Thank you again, Scott. Thanks so much. Take care. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into today's Salt Talk with Scott Sperling of Thomas H. Lee Partners. Just a reminder if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them all on our website at salt.org/talks 
or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're on social media. Please follow us if you're on uh, the various channels. Twitter is where we're most active, at Salt Conference is our handle. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love educating a broader audience of people as opposed to just being able to speak to 2,000 plus people at our annual conferences that we do in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, We've really enjoyed this Salt Talk series, so please spread the word. And on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.